it started already when I was an amateur. Uh, and the thing was, I had this teammate and he was really, he was really successful. But then he started seeing me as a threat. And for, for one season, all the time, he was, he was just pulling me all the time, all the time. And at the only time uh, he was nice to me was when I lost weight and I looked skinny. And he started to be nice to me and my friend and everything. And so um, I found a way how to, to keep my weight off and, and still able to, to eat normal amounts or sometimes overeat. And then it just escalated. Um, then oh, throughout what, the years... What was the eating disorder you had? Was it bulimia? Yeah, yeah. The big question is this. How do we use cycling as a tool to improve our health, our happiness, and our longevity? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Anthony Walsh, and welcome to the Roadman Podcast. Hello, Roadman. Welcome back to another Roadman Podcast. Have I got a serious treat in store for you today? My guest today is Yanni Barakovic. Yanni Barakovic has ridden for Discovery Channel. He's ridden for Astana. He's ridden for Bahrain Merida. Uh, Yanni Barakovic is a top 10 finisher, general classification in the Tour de France. He's also a former Criterium de Dauphiné winner. He was, I think, the first ever Slovenian world champion when he won the u23 world time trial championships as an amateur which is still crazy to think he's been teammates with alberto contador and lance armstrong but he really opened up in this interview it's an amazing interview where yanni all credit to him he he opens his heart and he talks to us about bullying depression doping eating disorders and ultimately it's, this podcast, it's a its a story of redemption. It's a story of somebody coming out the far side of all that adversity. And I suppose editorial note, since we recorded this podcast, uh, Yanni finished fourth in the Slovenian National Road Race Championships. Um, one and two was, you guessed it, Primus Roglic and Pogacar, two of the most two of the best riders in the world. I was going to say most promising, but they're far beyond most promising. They're two of the best bike riders in the world at the moment. And Yanni was in the break at the business end of that. So congratulations to Yanni. Undoubtedly, he'd be a little disappointed at the nature of the character he is, but a great result nonetheless. So I'm going to jump into that. But before I do, the way I'm able to bring you these podcasts every Wednesday is true to the generosity of the Patreons. A bunch of you guys have gone off and you've bought me a beer to say thank you over on Patreon on patreon.com forward slash Anthony underscore Walsh. And that is how I fund this podcast. We haven't quite hit break even point yet, but I'm hoping we will do that real soon. So if you're enjoying this content, 
If you would buy me a beer to say thank you, that would be very much appreciated. If you just tip the cap, say chapeau, I'm enjoying listening to this, an hour long each week, and I tell you many, many, many more hours of preparation on editing, uh, post-production. If you want to tip your cap and just say, you know what, thanks, I'll get you a beer for facilitating all that, Patreon is your way, you can do that. Jump on over there, I'm going to put the link in the description. Another way you can support the podcast and get something out of it yourself is jump on over to our merch store. And I know a chunk of you guys have bought Roadman merch already, which I can't wait to see you rocking that out and about on the roads, on Instagram. Make sure you tag me on it. I'm going to put the link to our merch store in the description also. Strap in, turn off any distractions you have, cancel those meetings, just you you got to ghost those Zoom calls. This one is epic. It's Yanni Brakovic. Yanni Brakovic, welcome to the Roadman Podcast. Thank you. Yanni, I'm excited about this chat. Yeah, me too. Me are you, are too you finally. Work? Yeah, we had, some, uh, we had some internet connectivity issues yesterday. You're in Slovenia at the moment? Yeah, yeah. Uh, what was going on yesterday? It's some weird thunderstorm. Well, yeah, we had the thunderstorm and uh, there was no Wi-Fi and we're staying at the hotel. It's basically an Olympic training center uh, with hypoxic rooms. And because it's only four of us here, everybody leaves at like 2 p.m. So uh, we're on our own and uh, there was nobody to to fix it. Ah, amazing. Uh, Is that something Um, um, the public can um, go to or is it like just your team? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's an amazing facility. Yeah. Yeah, we were chatting off air a little bit about uh, Slovenia on your Instagram stories. It just looks absolutely breathtaking. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, I need to get over there soon. Uh, Yanni, I used to watch you. I remember just when I was getting into cycling and just being, you know, when you're starting off and you're just trying to consume everything you can about cycling. Uh, I think you were one of the first riders I really started kind of following their career because I suppose you were coming into the sport at a time when I was starting to watch the sport seriously. And I feel like I've just watched your whole career all the way through. So yeah, I kind of have this weird voyeuristic thing chatting to you that I know a lot about you, but you don't know much (laughs) about me. (laughs) But you're famous for these crazy long training rides. And I even at one point heard you describing it as it's an addiction. When, When did that addiction start? Oh, it started. Uh, it started back in. It's basically started when I started riding my road bike. Uh, the thing was, I I started training really late. I was seventeen, eighteen. That that was my first year as a as a road racer. And the problem was I was very, very skinny, uh, no muscle mass. I had no history of any other sports beforehand. So uh, at the start of the year, I was, I was not doing well, to be honest. I was, I was getting dropped at the start line. And I would finish, I would do 20 minutes and then I would drop out. So... Uh, that summer, summer break, um, all my teammates uh, went for holidays and uh, I stayed at home. And I started doing these long rides from 8 a.m. till 5 p.m. 
And <laughs> I, yeah, seriously, I remember doing about 1,200 kilometers per week for two months. Whoa. And when we started racing again, I was, I was able to race, to actually race. And at the end of that year, I almost qualified for the Worlds. And that's basically how it started. And just, it, it just went up and up from, from there. Because I've heard you talking about you had a difficult childhood and you were sort of bullies growing up. Was cycling a little bit of an escape for you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because I, I was very, very shy. I didn't want to engage in anything. I didn't want to be judged by others. And riding a bike was my 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 escape basically i could i was able to do whatever i wanted and i loved it and then on the top of it um i was becoming really good at it so it was it was a bonus and that's how that's how it started and you hit the sport i suppose you're pro uh it was actually pre-pro 2004 you hadn't even turned pro uh you you turned pro in 2005 yeah, August 2005. Yeah, so in 2004, you were world champion as an amateur. Mm-hmm, yeah. And, like, talk to me about that. The tra- what was the training like in the lead-up to that? Because Well, it was purely a coincidence because one of my teammates, teammates he was supposed to do um, the time trial of uh, European Championships and then the Worlds, and uh, he got injured. So our coach said, uh, well, maybe... You should try it, and that's that's how we we started. I started training. There was a lot of uh, motor pacing uh, that year. I won the nationals, and then I think I was second or third at the Europeans, and then I won the the worlds. And how much work were you putting in? Because you were a skinny, like you're still a, a very lean rider, and you're all through your career, you were someone who really was a slight rider. You don't normally yeah. see those guys as TT powerhouses. Yeah, but um, at that time, I was, I was heavier than now. I was about uh, 62, 63 kilos. So I was, I was okay. I wasn't skinny, skinny. Yeah. Um, but now I'm, I'm, I'm skinnier. And how much, uh, say back in 2004, how much focus did you guys put on, you know, coefficient, the frontal drag and aerodynamics and this sort of nothing. stuff? Nothing. It was nothing. It Zero. Was- it was just motor pacing, nothing, nothing else. And I got, I got the bike from my teammate and uh, we kept the same position, everything. We didn't change anything. It was just his bike. <laughs> I remember at the start line, they, um, they had the scale and they were weighting the bikes. And so this guy um, uh, uh, takes my bike and he tries to put it on a scale and he's like, no, no, it's okay. Because it's, it was like 12 kilos. Seriously. It was a really heavy bike. Uh, 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 that's crazy. And you beat, yeah. was it Thomas Decker you beat? Yeah. 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 Like that's pretty nuts. I'm sure he had some aerial testing going on. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> so that win kind of gets you in the shop window. And was there, was that strange kind of going from, cause Slovenia, you were the first ever Slovenian world champion yes that's correct um it was strange because at the end of that year i was supposed to actually i signed the pre-contract with um 
Italian, you would say, second division team. Yeah. And uh, so that was set. I was supposed to, to write for them from August on. And then that November, uh, Johan Brunil called the, the team director. And so we, uh, we met in Belgium. Uh, they did some testing and that was it. He just said, okay. We're gonna sign you, and don't worry. Fuck. So, what's that like, Johan? Like, because we're talking 2005. Johan Brunel is the biggest director in cycling at that time, and he's just off the back of the postal years. Like, how insane is that? It was. Uh, I was really excited, but I don't want to. I don't want to so, um, sound arrogant, but my. Like I had a goal and that was just a part of my, of my development. I, I wanted to turn pro and I, uh, I wanted to, to race for really big team. And uh, I was fortunate to, to, um, to sign that contract immediately. Um, of course, I was, I was really happy, but I was also a little bit scared because um, I didn't know anybody. Uh, I never, uh, I never went to, to to the states beforehand, and uh, it was a little bit stressful. And are you making some decent cash out of that back in two thousand and five? No, I was making first year. I was making forty five thousand dollars. Second year, fifty five, and third year, sixty five. Okay, but it's it's a big jump from your amateur days. I oh assume. yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, what's Johan Brunel like? Um, I'll be very honest. I love him. And, and he's probably the guy who, who kept me sane and who, who kept me um, in the shape that I was capable of being at that time because I always wanted to try something new, something else, different drink. I even, at one point... I wanted to bring my altitude tent to a race and I had everything packed, ready to travel. And then he called me and said, no. And looking back, it was really crazy. <laughs> yeah. but, and then you followed Johan across to Astana and you're at mm -hmm. Astana. And what were you doing when you heard the news that Armstrong was coming back out of retirement? And he's going to be your teammate. It was cool. It was really nice. And um, already that winter, I was told I was going to do the Giro with him. So it was a big, big goal for me to be in good shape. And I think I did pretty well that race. Was that the first time you'd met Armstrong when he came? No, no. I Santa? met him in 2005 because I turned pro in August. But they, uh, they brought me to, um, to the States for their training camp in January already. So I trained with them for two weeks. Um, so that was, that, that was the first time I, uh, I talked to him. What, what was Armstrong like compared to the... Because I know I've, I've buddies who are you know, involved in that whole USADA case and stuff. And the, sometimes the, the image of them in the press is just not the person they are and is armstrong do you see two different people the person you know 
and the guy you see in the documentaries and the guy you see on the press? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think people only see one side of him and I was lucky enough to, to see his other part. And overall, I would say he's, he's done some bad things, but I don't think he's, he's a bad person. I don't think so. How open then was the knowledge that Armstrong was open or how widespread was it around that time? There was, there was in the team, there was no talk about that. No talk. It was like something you knew, but it was just like not mentioned. Well, I think you could suspect, but nobody talked about it. Yeah, I, I think nobody wanted to talk about it. I suppose he's just such a big character as well. And he, I know he's obviously different sides, but one of the sides we've seen over and over again with him is the almost little bit of a bully, like the treatment you know, of Emma O'Reilly and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Is that like a reason that people just didn't broach that subject, that it was just, you know, fear the Armstrong rat? Yeah, probably. probably. I mean, uh, he, he defended himself by attacking others so i think many people didn't even try to to do anything you know would you say you were friends with him i i consider him a friend i still talk to him uh, from time to time yeah. but i'm not i'm not his best buddy you know yeah it's it's not like my teammate here in the next room yeah, yeah. It's got to be hard watching a buddy go through because, you know, whatever about, you know, he doped, he took a penalty. But when I look at it, you know, Mike Barry, Christian Vandeveld, all these guys all had the same thing on USADA. They all admitted to doping through the postal years. A lot of them took six-month bans. Then Armstrong got the life ban, and it's yeah. like the same crime – one person got a six-month ban, one person got a death sentence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I also have some experiences with that because in 2018, um, I got suspended and I admit it was totally my fault, even though it, it wasn't intentional. Uh, it, it was my responsibility. Um, and I know how, how that uh, UCI and CADF how they work and and it's it was nothing about trying to find out what happened it was just if you can tell us about something about somebody you can get reduced sentence. is it actually like that yeah it's like yeah yeah, 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 yeah. It's, they, the, the the first conversation i had with them uh, was like if you can tell us something about somebody we can we can reduce your suspension for like a lot. Fucking hell! And how much reduction are you talking? I mean, I got um, so I was pretty. I did everything myself, defending myself, and I got to ten months, which I think was a little bit harsh because my the quantity of the substances in my urine was like hundred times less than when you actually take the substance to to get the benefit you know 
But okay, I got the 10 months, I deserved it. And if I was able to provide them with some information, it would be maybe three months. Because I think this is the moment as well, because I'm on the whereabouts protocol for mm -hmm. on, on the tandem trying to qualify for Tokyo at the moment. So, mm -hmm. you know, the testers land up to your house and I never begrudge the testers coming. You know, it's inconvenient and yeah, yeah. You're, pl you're planning on doing Like I came in a few weeks ago and I just come back from the gym and they're like, okay, where have you been? And I was like, as soon as I said gym, I was like, fuck, because I just went up to stretch. But if you've exercised, they have to come yeah, in. Yeah, and you can't yeah. get tested in for the next two hours or something. Yeah, yeah. So like, I've planned like recording podcasts, some Zoom calls, and I'm literally just sitting there drinking fucking cups of tea and making small talk. But And, and I, don't, I don't mind that because that's part of the job. But Exactly, exactly. It's just when you're at, like I'd say compared to where you were, and I suppose where you are now, like you're at a very low level now compared to where you were. Yeah. And yeah. Is it, it's kind of easy to let, I, I find that, I'm not sure what you think, it's easy to let the guard down and you take a multivitamin and you're not entirely sure of what's in the multivitamin. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what was your, what did you get uh, popped for? It was uh, uh, MH, metal hexanamine. It, it's uh, also called, it's known as uh, DMAA. It's some sort of stimulant, but the, the, the reason why it's banned, it's not that it's uh, ergogenic. It's actually bad for your health. It's dangerous. It, it, it used to be a drug, and 10, 15 years ago, they... Um, they uh, stopped uh, producing it because it increased blood pressure for some people. And that's why it's banned. How do you think it got into your system? Oh, I'm pretty sure that, that uh, I know the reason, but uh, I wasn't able to prove it. Um, uh, so I bought this, because um, I also talked about my eating disorder, and it was at the end of 2017, uh, when I um, didn't have a contract for next year, and I was going through a really rough time, and the only thing I was able to eat and actually keep it in my body was um, a meal replacement. So I bought this meal replacement powder, which was... Um, it had a pretty good formula. It was like oats and beef protein and fish protein, and, and it's, it was minimally processed. Uh, it tasted pretty good, but I didn't know at the time that this, uh, this very same company used to produce um, a supplement containing this uh, ingredient. And I guess it was uh, cross-contamination. Yeah, because so the the the, sub, the the amount of substance was so low that it's if you take it intentionally, it would be one hundred times more in your urine. So for anyone listening, like doping is a strict liability offense, which means you just have to have the prohibited substance in your system, and then you're found guilty of the doping infraction. Yeah. They don't really care how it got there. Like exactly. So it is unless. There's, there's one thing that you have to know. Uh, unless you were prescribed 
a drug, and that drug was uh, contaminated with a banned substance, and you can prove it, then you th then it's possible to um, to get off without the suspension. I suppose the most famous but example. It has to be a drug. The most famous example of the tainted stuff is an ex-teammate of yours, Alberto Contador. I think did he claim that the beef was contaminated? Yep. Was yeah. it clambuterol? Was that for yeah, that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And is that plausible in your opinion? Mm, um, well, it's possible, but um, there's no clan allowed in European Union, so. If he was training in Argentina or China, it would be uh, very likely. But in the Europe, I, I have no idea. I cannot say that he was lying or that he was right. And is clambuterol, uh, I know it's popular with bodybuilders and stuff like that for stripping weight off. It's, it's illegal in cycling, but is it something that would have been talked about? Are you seeing riders using clambuterol to try and strip weight in, in season or out season? I, I don't think so because it, the thing with clen, um, it stays in your fat tissue. So when you race, you're naturally going to go through some lipolysis. And then when you start burning fat, that clen is going to get liberated and get into your blood uh, ah, circulation. And then you pee it out. So yeah. one day you can be negative, and the next day you can be positive, but you didn't change anything, you know. Uh, Yanni, you spoke, uh, or you mentioned briefly, uh, the eating disorder you had. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you want to talk to me a little bit about that? How did that? Yeah, yeah. How yeah. did how did that come about? Yeah. Um, so the thing with me was it started already when I was an amateur, um, and the thing was I had this teammate, and he was really he was really successful. But then he started seeing me as a threat. And for, for one season, all the time, he was, he was just bullying me all the time, all the time. And but the only time uh, he was nice to me was when I lost weight and I looked skinny. And he started to be nice to me and my friend and everything. And so um, I found a way how to, to keep my weight off and, and still I, I, able to, to eat normal amounts or sometimes overeat. And then it just escalated. Um, then oh, throughout what, the years... What was the eating disorder? Was it bulimia? Yeah, yeah. And, and then... Like so, what does what does that do to? I know you're quite accomplished now, and you've a sort of a keen interest in nutrition. Like with the knowledge you have now, what does making yourself sick purging? What's that doing to you? Like in terms of electrolyte balance? Yeah, yeah. There's there's a huge imbalance, uh, and every time you purge, uh, there's loss of electrolytes, and then. Um, your magnesium gets low, your potassium can be can be low. But I I never 
well, I wanted to address my problem, but I just couldn't. So I started checking my potassium, my sodium, my magnesium, and I started supplementing and trying to at least not to kill myself, yeah. if I'm honest. Um, and and so it was you, going okay. Are you purging like in your discovery years? Like at what yeah. point it, yeah, it goes yeah. all through yeah. your career? It, it was on and off throughout my career for for 10, 10 years, 11 years. How hard is that to ask for help? It's, it's impossible. I mean, because at that point, you, your self-esteem is, is zero. And you feel like you're, like you're not worth living a life. And everybody you talk to and they're praising you how, how fit you look, how skinny you are, you're basically lying to them because they would also talk about the diet and what you eat, how much you eat, how much you drink. And whatever you say, you're lying. So that's another thing. And then at some point, there would be somebody who would ask me uh, if there's something wrong with me because it's, for me, it was really easy to hide it. But at times, somebody would notice that somebody, something's not right. And when they, when they approach you, you're not ready to talk about it. Uh, you're going to deny it. And, and, and from that point on, you also know that you were lying to that person and you can never be honest with him again. Do, 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 do. It's our intermission. This podcast, it's been good so far, but trust me, as somebody who sat there late into the night editing this podcast, the second half of this podcast really starts to heat up. Yanni Brakovic, he's a great character. Uh, this is your weekly intermission. This is the point where at, maybe at some point we'll get a sponsor and we'll insert it in here. Uh, but for now, you're going to listen to me and you're going to listen to me with a smile on your face. Uh, the purpose of this intermission is for us all to just decompress, take a collective exhalation, appreciate what has gone and look forward to what is to come. Said like a true like a true man who was raised in Catholic Ireland and is forced into the church every Sunday morning. Uh, the reason for this break, much like the church, it's our collection. It's time to pass around the hat. The way we fund this podcast, it's true user generosity over on patreon.com. If you would be willing to buy me a beer, to buy me a coffee at my next coffee stop and say, you know what, I've enjoyed this. Jan Brakovich, Steve Cummins, Tyler Hamilton, Ted King, how the fuck are you doing it? Where are you getting all the guests from? If you're willing to say, holy shit, these guests are unbelievable, I will buy you a beer. Patreon.com forward slash Anthony Walsh. That's the place you can do it. Now, just relax, set the jaw to stone, because this Yanni Brakovich podcast is about to take off. And is it like is it like living a double life? Because we spoke about Armstrong yeah. a minute ago, and he obviously had yeah. that double life with Dopen. You, like you're winning the biggest bike races, in the, like you won the Criterium the Dauphiné, and you're yeah. you know you're following Contador in the mountains. 
you're the pinup boy for cycling. You know, I'm in Ireland and I'm watching video clips of Yanni Brakovic, but you're going back to your hotel room and you're deeply troubled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, there were times when I could control it, especially when I was going well, like doing Dauphine for that 10 days, 12 days, I was fine. I was not, um, I was not feeling fine, but I did not do anything crazy or stupid. I just tried to control it as much as I could. But uh, then after the race, uh, it starts again. Uh, and, and if you don't get help, you, it's almost impossible to, to, to win this fight alone. Like we spoke at the very start of the podcast about your sort of obsessive training and is that sort of obsessive quality? Because I know the little I know about eating disorders, I know one aspect of it is the control aspect. You're taking control back because it is something you can control. Do you think that was, you know, that personality trait that caused you to get up in the morning at eight o'clock and ride till 5 p.m.? was also the same personality trait that made it difficult to come to terms with this eating disorder? Yeah, well, in the beginning, you think that you have control. But very, very quickly, you realize that food controls you, controls you and you're not in control. You're just a passenger. And, and when you, in my case at least, when I started overeating, I knew what was going to happen, but I couldn't stop. And, and that was the thing I, ju I just couldn't control. And, and you cannot talk to anybody about it. Were you That's working it. with any sports psychologists or anything like that at the time? No, no. Because it just seems to me like nearly the perfect cocktail of yeah, fucked up. When you're yeah, but when you're in that situation, you don't want to work with anybody. You, because you're so ashamed that you don't want anybody to know what's going on and you don't want to help. That's, that's also why um, in all these years, I always did my training ca camps by myself, all alone. No, nobody to help me, just, just me and my bike. And were you depressed during those points as well? I was, I wouldn't define it as depression, but um, when I wasn't going well, uh, I, I think, yeah, there was some, some times when you could say I was, I was not, I was not well mentally. It's like, I always think, cause I know we're roughly the same age and, you know, definitely grown up for me, depression, it was it was a bad word almost. It was like a sign of vulnerability. Yeah, yeah. It still is. Yeah, it's. I, I think just depending culturally on where you are, it's becoming, well, at least my understanding of it is, I used to think either it's binary, either you're depressed or you're not depressed. It's a yes mm -hmm. or no question. When I think, to be honest, it's not binary, it's a scale. You know, we're all yeah, on the scale yeah. somewhere from, I had mm -hmm. a bad train ride today, I'm stuck in traffic, to I'm suicidal. And we're all on that continuum. Mm -hmm somewhere uh and i guess with you know living that double life it's putting you further up that continuum than yeah you would like yeah. to be yeah yeah what do you think about how we can address this because 
I know you're a cycling coach now and you're a, I'd say, a, I'd nearly refer to you as sort of a student of the sport. It seems like you have a passion for just learning everything about the body and physiology. And mm-hmm. so, you know, you more than anyone and the listeners, if you don't know already, the two main variables that govern how fast we go uphill govern a lot of our performance. It's the power we can produce and our weight. Yeah. And, you know, how do we reconcile that power to weight equation with the vulnerabilities people have and the prevalence of eating disorders? Well, I think first we, we need to talk about it more, uh, more openly. And then there should be people uh, trained in psychology and eating disorders in the teams because doctors cannot help you. And, and the fact is that uh, in all the teams I've, I've um, wrote for, the doctors were, there was no patient doctor, um, like nothing was confidential, nothing. Yeah. So when I had a problem, I talked to the doctor and five minutes later, DS talks to me uh, on the bus if I'm fine, you know? And, and nobody wants to talk to a doctor who's telling everybody my problems. Um, that's why we, knew, why we need uh, people specialized in these areas and people who, who can keep things private, of course. Because I talked to Tyler Hamilton on the podcast uh, mm-hmm. a couple of months ago, and Tyler's a lovely guy. And uh, Tyler was telling me about his experiences with Dr. Ferrari. And he said he mightn't see him for a month, but one of the first things he'd do when he'd see yes. him is pull out the calipers and go, you're too fat. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I can tell you, I'm not going to name the team, but um, from time to time, uh, I get contacted uh, by World Tour riders. And this year in January, they, this team had a training camp in Spain, I think. And the... Um, their nutritionist, who was never a cyclist, uh, never rode the bike, but she's a dietitian or whatever. Um, she put the whole team on ketogenic diet and their food was measured. And every night they would get a plate with their amount of food. And that's what they eat, nothing else. And then every morning, they would uh, step on a scale, and if the weight was too high, their, um, their meals were adjusted so that the next day they're going in the right direction uh, weight-wise. But the, the and, problem with that is if you, you know, to uh, a, a butcher has one solution to every problem, it's, you know, the meat cleaver. Uh, it's the same <laughs> with this. The dietitian is trained exactly. in one approach. Like, you know, uh, and I've heard you speaking about it, when you're stressed, the body's naturally high elevated cortisol levels. Mm-hmm. It makes it difficult for us to lose weight. And if yeah. you have constant, you know, awareness about food and it's the front of every conversation and dialogue, that has to bump up stress levels. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And I mean, what, what happened next is... When they went home, they started overeating, and then they they gained all the weight 
they lost during the camp and gained some extra weight. It's crazy. It's a crazy culture. And I actually don't know the solution to it because it's obviously not okay to be heavy in cycling because yeah. you do need to and, and it's also how they approach it. Um, I know there are still uh, sports directors who, who will directly tell you that you're fat and you're fat as a pig and you should lose weight and you're never going to be cyclist again if you don't lose weight. And, and that's, these are some really heavy words and they have an effect on, on, a, on, on the cyclist. I, I chatted to Nicholas Roach on the podcast and he actually has, you know, quite a nice sensible approach to diet. He said he tries to stop it being a, a impulsive thing that mm -hmm. he's, he's not just walking down the pier in monaco and thinks oh you know what i'll go in and have an ice cream and two beers he thinks about his day at the start of the day and goes you know what i'm gonna have a couple of beers and an ice cream tonight so he maybe rides an extra 30 minutes that day or he maybe just holds back a little bit on lunch and he won't have yeah. you know yeah. an extra baguette or an extra potato at lunch and he just looks at the totality of his day and he said mm -hmm. for him that just gives him you know great balance yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, even if you look at in a in a uh, length of a week, even if you're one day, I don't know, one thousand calories higher than you should be, there's still six days in a week. So it, what it matters is your weekly calories. First, if because I, I I don't think we should count calories because it's it's an extra stress. I tried that. And, and, and even though I don't count calories right now, I would always subconsciously know how much I ate. And but I'm it, not really obsessing with it, but I just know. But isn't this a cultural thing now, Yanni, that people think that they're, everyone's looking for a quick fix? Or yeah. they think, you know, if I'm under on calories, this like a question I get all the time with like not coached clients, but people like, you know, inquiring about stuff. It's like, oh, you know, what's the best session to do or something? And you're just trying to go like you're pulling your hair out going, there's no bet. Like one session doesn't do shit. Like, you know, it's, yeah. it's yeah. a repetition of behavior over a period of time. Like missing one session doesn't fuck you up doing one amazing session doesn't make it. And it's the same with one bad day, one good day on diet. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. And it's also like counting calories can be helpful and for somebody might be really important, but for somebody else, it, it might be a way to an eating disorder. You know, it's, it's, it's a very thin line between being professional and being obsessed and, and having eating disorder. Yeah, I like the idea of counting calories for like a week. And then you get an yeah. idea of what, because, you know, you talk to some guys and you get them to do a small food diary and you look at it and straight away with an understanding of how many calories and stuff, you're like, I can see why you're putting on weight. You're just eating way too much. But they don't understand that, you know, the fucking chocolate brownie they're having on lunch four days a week is actually another 750 calories. Like in their head, they're kind of going, oh, maybe it's 250 calories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, we're like, people are wired to 
uh, over-report good behaviors and under-report bad behaviors. So it's, uh, when it comes to calories, they're always gonna, gonna under-report if it's about the, the weight loss, you know? What's your because approach to I, Well, what I do with my clients, um, we would, as you said, we would count calories for a week, like, just like lock everything. And I like the chronometer, you know the app? No, what's that? Chronometer. It's called chronometer. It's, it's just like fitness pile, but it's way better. It's way more accurate and gives you like minerals, vitamins, everything, everything you can imagine. And just see what they eat for a week and then go, go from there and, and um, how much they wait at the start and the end of the week. And then we see what, what, what we can do. And do you have a particular dot? Like, so I'm just thinking about our typical listener. And I think it's fair to say without insulting any of you listeners out there that yeah. most of them will be looking to lose anywhere from three kilograms to six kilograms. Someone, if a client like that comes into you, what are the, what are the sort of things you're looking for in their diet at the end of that week after you have it in chronometer? Well, I look what they eat, how much they eat, um, sometimes when they eat. And then there are some people that really try to restrict carbs. And I think carbs can be very good and very bad depending on situation. So, uh, and then I make sure they have enough vitamin D, magnesium, um, omega-3s, um, of course, vegetables, whole healthy um, food, basically. Are you uh, in favor of kind of like carb backloading, having the carbs no. straight no. after training? Uh, straight after training, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it also depends what you want to achieve. Um, in, in my case, with my training, I would sometimes, um, if I do five hours, I would try to restrict, cal not carbs, just calories, because I don't do well on low-carb diet. I do well on low-calorie diet. Um, when I need to lose weight, of course. I would restrict carbs or calories in the last... 60 to 90 minutes of the training and then i would have some carbs after the training and protein and then i also do another training session in the evening which really works well for me not just for weight loss but also for how i feel how i sleep and how i perform and obviously there's so many people and so many uh, different options and what, uh, what they uh, do well on that uh, I cannot say this is the best diet or approach for everybody. Yeah, but I know for the second training session for anyone who hasn't tried that in a day, I know it seems pretty crazy, especially for amateurs who are struggling to get in one session, but there's such a huge benefit in terms of even human growth hormone production on yep. that second session later in the day. 
on days when you're not doing a second session, will you look to nap to get that same human growth? No, I, I, I cannot nap. That's, no. that's impossible. Because it seems chatting to the World Tour guys, a lot of them, if they don't do a second session in a day, they will be nappers. Okay. And I know I chatted to Willie Smith uh, from Progress mm-hmm. BH last week. And Willie's an interesting guy, but I'm not sure if you've experimented with this, but Willie will try for his fasted rides. So if he's doing a fasted ride on a Saturday, he starts thinking about this fasted ride on a Friday. And the second half of his Friday ride, he will stop eating carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. Then mm-hmm. he won't replace carbohydrates post-ride with a recovery drink or anything. And he won't have carbohydrates for dinner that night. Then he'll wake up the next morning, have a black coffee, won't eat at all during his spin, and then he'll replace carbs after the spin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you played around with that? I... Um... I don't like riding fasted. It doesn't work for me because I usually in the morning I need an hour to wake up and at home there's so many things to do that I just don't see any benefits riding fasted, coming back home, having a breakfast and then going out again. Um, what works way better for me is just restricting at the end of the ride and then going low carb, no, no carb, but just low carb um, for the rest of the day and maybe for the, for the night as well, depending what I have the next day. And on a two, say today, just picking a figure out in my head, uh, I'm trying to think what time did I do today? So I had a two and a half thousand calorie ride today. So if you're doing a two and a half thousand calorie ride, are you, how much of that two and a half thousand calories are you looking to replace on the bike versus when you finish with recovery drinks? What I figured out for myself is I started feeling uh, being in low energy state when um thousand calories in deficit during the ride so if i'm at 2500 and that's very rough let's say 2500 and my metabolic rate is let's say 1500 it's more basically it's more than 2000 yeah i'm an anomaly um that's it uh 1500 25 that's 4000 calories and if I eat 3,000 calories, that's 1,000 in deficit. And that's when I started, start uh, feeling being in low energy state. And I would usually end my session with that 1,000 deficit and then go from there. And that's my depleted ride, let's say. Yanni, we've talked about some, you know, I'm going to say some heavy topics uh, and some very serious topics, Um, but let's finish off the podcast and just revisit. I suppose, would you say the Dauphiné win, career highlights or top 10 in Tour de France? Which one do you look at? Dauphiné. Dauphiné. Also because at that time, I was so much better than anybody else. 
uh, that I don't think I was ever that that strong. When you look back on your career now, are you happy with it? Um, I believe it was successful. I have no regrets. And I feel lucky to be around people I was in the beginning of my career. What's the next chapter hold for you? I know you're still, you're still riding the bike. You're still riding a continental level. How serious are you taking that? You're at- uh, the answer is Sunday. We have national championships. Ah, nice. And there's not, let's say we don't have many cyclists. But the problem is we have two of the best cyclists in the world. Yeah, you got Roglic going on over there. And Pogacar. Oh, yeah, shit. Yeah. yeah. You got two of the best in the world. Yeah. So how good is your form at the moment? How well are you looking after yourself? Uh, honestly? Yeah. I've never been better. Seriously? Yeah. Numbers looking good? Numbers, uh, I'm 58 kilos and 383 threshold. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Fuck, that's good going, Yanni. So can, yeah. you, can you do a podium? I want to win. Oh, that's what you want to hear. Because there's a mountaintop finish. But, so will you, is, like, you know, you're not old. You're 35, 36 years old? 36. Like, will you consider stepping back up a level again? Or is it, are you on the wind down now? No, I'm not done. Because I started when I was 18. And I still feel I have um, a lot of energy, a lot of mental and physical energy to continue for at least a year, two years, three years. So, but when I wake up and I start thinking about how much I hate training, I'll just stop. Like, do you take a lot of comfort from looking at Valverde and going, fuck, he's still going, yeah. he's still doing it? Yeah, yeah. Yanni, I wish you all the best on Sunday. And it's been really an honor to chat to you. I really enjoyed it. And thanks for opening up around some really difficult topics. Thanks a lot. It was a pleasure. And Yanni, best of luck Sunday, and I'll chat to you soon. Thank you very much. Oh, leave it out. I was, oh, I was on tender hooks. I actually didn't, I, I felt uncomfortable at points during the podcast. It was so, he opened up so much. I honestly, I'm a Dublin lad and I didn't know, I'm, I'm awkward around that sort of emotion sometimes. I didn't know where to look. Oh, it was a good one. Uh, thank you for your attention this week. Thank you for everyone who's checked out the Patreon. Oh, before I go, I wanted to make you guys, make available to you listeners, a crazy, crazy, if I had a boss, the boss would definitely sack me for this one. We have this strength and conditioning course. It's an insane course. It's worked with some sports scientists and physiologists and put this together. It's 12 weeks. It's a periodized strength and conditioning course made with cycling in mind so it's periodized around your training plan it's two sessions a week it's a video series telling you showing you demo of exactly what you should do through all these and there's a load more shit in there as well it's epic 
this is normally priced, I think, at around 400 and something, 440, something like that. For podcast listeners, I want to start generating the hype around this podcast and going, you know what? Anthony's a sound man on the podcast, and he's also giving away some crazy deals on the podcast. So it's an extra bonus reason to listen till the end. So this 400-odd euro uh, strength and conditioning series which every cyclist needs to have in their hands I'm going to chop the price I'm going to put a unique link into the description here and I'm going to make it like 19 quid 19.95 for podcast listeners don't go sharing that link around that's yours that's you that's your your payoff for listening to my ramblings that's it that's a wrap up on the podcast that's a roadman podcast for another week thank you for your time and be safe on the roads